A lot of the people that we fear are just like us. Immigrants, too, also go through cancer, Alzheimer's disease, a lot of issues that everyday Americans are going through. And if you see ourselves and our common humanity from that place that we are just like them, then I think there's an, an opportunity to really uh, build a more accepting, tolerant, and empathetic world. It's easy to talk about the successes, but what doesn't get talked about enough is the struggle. My name is Eric Weinmayer. I've gotten the chance to ascend Mount Everest, to climb the tallest mountain in every continent, to kayak the Grand Canyon, and I happen to be blind. It's been a struggle to live what I call a no barriers life, to define it, to push the parameters of what it means. And part of the equation is diving into the learning process and trying to illuminate the universal elements that exist along the way. And that unexplored terrain between those dark places we find ourselves in and the summit exists a map. That map, that way forward, is what we call no barriers. Today we meet Ryan Latata, born in Kuwait to refugee parents. Ryan was raised in the Philippines before his family immigrated to the Bronx. Today, Ryan is CEO and founder of Next Day Better, a media company that exists to humanize the migrant experience. With the goal of creating the world's largest library of migrant stories, the company seeks to reimagine migrants, immigrants, and refugees as a benefit to humanity. Ryan also serves as a Google Next Gen Policy Fellow, and he's a Fulbright Scholar, Posse Foundation alumnus, and on the Board of Trustees of Wheaton College, Massachusetts. We're totally excited to have Ryan Latata here with us today. This is amazing. Uh, I think you have an incredible no barrier story, Ryan, and uh, we want to dive into that today. And it's not like the prototypical no barrier story of, you know, a physically disabled person who's broken through barriers, but definitely it taps into these ideas that we talk about at No Barriers, which is like the invisible challenges, you know, like every human being on earth are tied together by the challenges that we break through. And maybe they're not all that different. You've had a really incredible journey building uh, next day, uh, better media. And uh, you must have gone through incredible challenges building that business and organization. Yeah. You want to tell us about it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I am a Filipino immigrant born in Kuwait, raised in the Philippines and eventually immigrated to the Bronx, New York. And my family, actually, even though they're Filipinos, they're also refugees at some point when they escaped Kuwait and during the Gulf War and went to Amman, Jordan. And a lot of their story in terms of being immigrants and migrants around the world has just been just awe-inspiring, heartbreaking. My parents, you know, my dad told me a story when someone pulled a gun to his head when he was waiting for food during the Gulf War in Kuwait. Uh, and I was only five years old at that time. And I just think about their story and how in today's world, their story is largely invisible. They're like these invisible people walking through, um, um, you know, the streets of New York or America, and their stories are largely untold. And the amount of resilience and what they face in the world is largely untold. And that's kind of a, a reflection of what's happening in the world today and how we're thinking about migrants and immigrants and refugees, right? And so we built Next Day Better so that we can, you know, win this global PR battle around immigrants and what it means to be migrants and refugees, et cetera. And so we built this media company. We're growing. We're telling more stories around the world and continue to do so. But hey, uh, you know, before Trump, when we started this company in uh, 2014, it was hard to get funding. 
investments and people to care about immigrants. It was hard to get brands to care about immigrants, right? But now with what's happening in this, you know, political climate around the world, not just in America, now people suddenly care about what it means to be an immigrant and engaging immigrants in uh, meaningful ways. And so it's been a trip. I mean, I could go down a road and tell you all the rock bottom moments that I've had in terms of helping build this company to the moment where I have had $27 in my bank account uh, <laughs> and not being able to afford like lunch to just like the, the painful moments of saying like, should I continue to push forward? And I'm glad I did. Go into that a little bit for us. Yeah. Tell us <laughs> it's now that we're there already, <laughs> we dove down fast, but tell us about the uh, challenges of, of growing this organization. I mean, yeah, what was the rock bottom moment? Yeah, we had multiple. <laughs> I heard you uh, almost went bankrupt or maybe did yeah. have have some struggles in the beginning. Yeah, for sure. So I'm, I'm a person that is focused on just living a life of service and life of purpose. You know, I've, I've thought that way since as early as I could remember. And uh, one of the first things that I did before I built Next Day Better was one of the founding individuals who started the One Laptop Per Child program in the Philippines. Have you ever heard of uh, One Laptop Per Child or remember that at all? Yeah. Yeah. For sure. It's this uh, exo durable laptop that was designed uh, out of MIT to go in developing countries. We were able to launch that program in the Philippines with the Secretary of Education of the Philippines. We were able to launch 500 in our laptops in our pilot program in a rural classroom. Uh, in the Philippines and then uh, expanded to 2000. We got all this media, we got all this press. And all of a sudden, you know, I look at my bank account and the first time, this is my first rock bottom moment. I only had at that point less than 50 pesos. Hmm. $1 is equivalent to 50 pesos, right? Roughly right now speaking. And I could not afford to buy a 27 peso lunch and that was 60 cents. So here's this Filipino-American coming back to the Philippines to start this program, and I couldn't afford lunch. And I was getting all this press, all this media, I was doing the handshakes with left, uh, you know, celebrities to influencers to government officials, and I couldn't afford lunch. And so that was like the first rock bottom moment, and I was like, wow, why am I? doing this. I'm able to help all these children and all these classrooms and teachers, but yet I wasn't able to help myself. And so that was my first rock bottom moment before I even started Next Day Better. And that helped me kind of think through kind of like what, well, you know, how am I going to do this differently? Let me ask you then. So, so you, you said early on that you have the spirit of a servant leader, right? You've always kind of looked at life through that lens of, of wanting to, to be of service. So you move to the Bronx when you're young, your parents move you over there. And then, but, but because of who you are, you decided that you could create the most impact by going back to the, to the Philippines. Now, as you struggled, as you're talking about, you know, not being able to even put food in your mouth there, did a part of you understand that this journey that you were on was going to take you down this, you know, fraught with, with challenge path that you, you, you signed up for and that you would ultimately transcend it? Did you, did you get that? Did you know that in the back of your mind? Or was it was sort of a woe is me moment? Like, how am I ever gonna, how am I ever gonna get out of this? And why did I choose this path? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's such a good question. It's, um, you know, I knew it was going to be hard, right? Change and creating change in the world is difficult and hard. But I did not know it was going to be that hard. <laughs> I did not know I wasn't going to be able to afford that lunch. And I remember when that happened and I pulled out the money in my pocket and uh, there was nothing in my bank account, like I, I teared up. And mind you, I was also a Fulbright scholar in the oh, Philippines. Yeah. Mm. And I started, you know, uh, co-started One Laptop Per Child. And it was such a hit in the ego that I think I went through a, a level of depression and said like, wow, this is my dream to make this difference and change in the world, but like, wow, it took such a mental, emotional, and physical hit 
that to a point I had to call my parents. This is when I was in my early twenties, right? And I was like, Hey mom, I can, I need to go home back to the United States. Can you bring me home? I came home, you know, I was getting all again. This is at the height of getting all this media (laughs) attention and accolades. And after a Fulbright scholar, I'm getting written up about in terms of my research and my work with One Laptop Per Child. And I find myself working at Banana Republic Mm. after that period. And so I kind of took that time to really assess, like, there has to be a better way to do this and a better way to fill up my tank and make sure that I don't put myself on fire to keep other people warm. That was my biggest lesson uh, from that from that notion. Because you're doing amazing things in the world and you're spiraling downward and not able to buy lunch. So that's like a huge teaching moment for you, right? Absolutely. Like a, a life lesson. And it's just in order for us to help others and, you know, amplify the impact in the world, I pay attention to my emotional and mental well-being. And so it was from that point upon returning in the Philippines, I'm in my mid thirties now, and that was early twenties. I, the way for me to get out of that funk and that depression was to go to therapy. So Mm -hmm. my business advice for anyone is to go to therapy, to go to therapy. Okay. So, so let's explore that a little bit. So when you say therapy, you're talking about your own mental health, right? And you're, cause you felt like because of these extraneous circumstances that you had intentionally, really intentionally put yourself in, you were sort of swimming around the bottom of the barrel right there, but your mental health was taking a beat. If I'm correct in understanding your trajectory and how it went for you, really, I mean, it sounds like your mental health needed some needed some tuning, some fine tuning as well. But you needed to figure out a better business model. <laughs> you needed to learn how to, right. You need to learn how to be of service, but continue to figure out how to put food in your mouth. So it sounds like did you did you ever have any discussions with any professionals that could help you develop more, I guess, more of a detailed business plan? Yeah, absolutely. So it was a, after that experience, you know, I did a self-assessment. I sat down and kind of just reflected and this self-assessment, by the way, took months, right? So this is not just instantaneous one sit down. In addition to getting a a therapist and, you know, um, support in that way, I also looked at coaching. So my therapy and mental health support looked at my past. And why did I do what I did in order to kind of create this quote unquote change in the world? So that was a look in my past. And I looked at and I took up coaching to think about my future and think about the business model to help make that change sustainable. And so that was the, the, the journey there to help me, me arrive to next day better. So you decided to start coaching yourself or be coached? Be coached. I'm sorry. Yeah. So did you, how do you, how does one go out and get a coach if they're in that situation? Because also the other piece that I thought was really interesting is you, uh, in in one of the articles I read, you were saying that like 50% of entrepreneurs go through mental health issues. So this is not just like you or just a few people. This is a lot of people struggling with the same stuff. Oh, absolutely. I love what I do. next day better and the stories we tell i get to travel around the world but the business part can be very sadistic it could be an emotional mental roller coaster even though you're achieving all the success whether it's getting in revenue and building more partnerships and growing your team it's really difficult and i think for me i am a brown immigrant in america my parents have cultural expectations of me becoming a doctor and investment banker or etc. And so there they, was this, they didn't think you were going to go into the, the world of philanthropy and humanitarian. That wasn't like on their card of what they wanted their son to do. No, absolutely no. not. You know, in their mindset, it's like they went through this hardship in life, again, being refugees and being uh, carving a, a, their place in the world. And, you know, they didn't want me, their, their son to kind of go through a, a challenging experience like that. And so that is that is the need what i needed to unlearn was some of these 
cultural expectations and pressures that I put on myself. I want, I needed to unlearn kind of like my perceptions about how to create change. I needed to unlearn in terms of thinking about philanthropy versus creating a, a sustainable business model where you're, you're, you're bringing value, not to just the people you want to serve, but for your brand partners or whoever else. And so there was, it was a, a lot of process of unlearning that I had to do through coaching and through therapy. That's so interesting. So what I'm hearing is like you saying that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but like if you are, if you go through all kinds of adversity and challenge to, to get to a country and you want maybe like your mindset becomes safe, like go get out and, and do the safe thing, right? Like become an accountant, just stability is what you need to achieve. And maybe that constrains you from thinking a little bit bigger and differently. Absolutely. And I think it is, um, it's that feeling of safety. That's what your parents want for you, right? As, as, as immigrants right. and you become risk adverse. They, they, the, the messaging that many immigrant parents have is like, I've gone through this risk. You don't have to. And so in, in my particular culture, entrepreneurship is, is a rarity. And it is not as supported as it needs to be. But entrepreneurship is key to like generating wealth, right? Or creating jobs for your community. And so I was really discouraged to take this entrepreneurial route by many people. You know, uh, for example, not just my parents, right? There's a cultural. There's also the societal pressure of saying, don't be an entrepreneur in some shape or form. What is an example of that? I immigrated to the Bronx. The Bronx educational schooling system, right, is not the greatest. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, it, uh, in many ways, if you take a look at a school in the Bronx, or have you been, uh, have you been to the Bronx or have seen? Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. or, uh, not in a, or, or experienced the, the school infrastructure? Well, but, yeah. I don't think we've been in the educational system necessarily, but I'll tell you, I mean, it's just like so many other communities. There's the gentrified area that's upper class, upper tier in the Bronx, right? But then you've got the heart and soul of the Bronx, which is like probably, you know, what your experience has with, with education, where the, the money's not there. It's a, probably a rundown building with a rundown curriculum, I imagine, yeah? Yeah. And, and I remember like, um, back in the 80s when I lived in Connecticut, yeah, there were certain places in the Bronx that you were always said, like, don't go there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a, as, a, as an immigrant who came to the Bronx at the age of 11, the, yeah. one of the first things that I saw was uh, uh, one of the teachers get stabbed by a pencil oh. in their hands. You know, they, a student stabbed the teacher with a pencil. And so I was just like, wow. Welcome to America, uh, bro. Well, yeah, welcome to America, <laughs> right? And then, Jeez. you know, you go to this place and you go to see the school and you notice from the outside that there's a lot of, it's like a caged in fence. There's a lot of met, metal caging to prevent theft or for security purposes in that particular school. And then you just kind of think to yourself like, wow, this is what a normal school would look like. You know, in actuality, it kind of looks like a prison. And I am going into school and I am being padded, you know, if I have a knife or if I have a weapon. So the moment you go into school in the morning, every single day you're getting padded. Mm. And that, that sends a message to you that, whoa, you're like, a, a, you know, a criminal can be a criminal or like you're this is not a safe building, not a safe institution. And then you go into kind of like your learning experience. And then, you know, I had a guidance counselor that told me once, like, you know, I'm looking at this college or university and he was so discouraging. And he said, well, you will never make it there and you will never make it mm -hmm. uh, in terms of college. Right. And so not only are you getting this message from your parents that, hey, don't take this risk because, you know, there's a likelihood and chance that you will not succeed with entrepreneurship. But you're also getting this messaging as an immigrant in the Bronx that, wow, you're not good enough, that you will not succeed in the world, that you belong in this prison-like school environment. And that is so much to take in as a going into adulthood. And that's something that, to this day, I'm still unlearning as an entrepreneur, right? 
So a lot of those things, that message then tells me like, oh, I don't belong, right? I don't belong in these decision-making table rooms or these uh, conferences where they feature entrepreneurs. A lot of that is something that I have to battle internally in my head as part of building Next Day Better. So there's nothing in that educational system like in the Bronx that prepared you or like, was there any positive light? Was there any teachers that kind of broke the mold or were there any like entrepreneurial organizations that you could join or you're saying that it was pretty barren, right? I think it is barren in a way that how it sets up your mindset right? as you kind of go into life and trying to amplify your impact and presence in the world. Yeah. But it's more of, um, how do you say this? I, I remember when I speak to investors, they ask me, you know, one of the things that we're looking for is grit. We're looking to invest in individuals with grit. Mm-hmm. And I tell them, I was like, well, my life as an immigrant in the Bronx is about grit. <laughs> and so... What is a entrepreneurial grit, if not, you know, my life in the Bronx and my immigrant experience wherever I am in the world. So that is my main takeaway from my experience in in the Bronx is like the need to hustle and to be resilient and to live with a gritty sense of meaning. But maybe, as you said, coming back to maybe don't think too big because that's unrealistic. Yeah. Yeah. What a well, shame. Eric and I have Eric and I have played around with this friend of ours twenty five years ago quoted this 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 thing and I I can't ever shake it. And it was like when we were first starting to climb together and she said, What was it, Eric? She said, Shoot for the stars and maybe you'll get the moon, I think is what it was. <laughs> yeah. Or like, and then that just poses this question of, you know, what's more satisfying to establish a goal that is absolutely within reach? Uh, and you, you're pretty pretty confident that you will attain that goal, um, or contrary to set a goal that is just absolutely astronomically difficult, and that the chances in, of, of likelihood of success are you know in the mm-hmm. single digits. And then you you know if you fail versus the success on the one where you absolutely should get it. Um, what do you feel? What, where's your mind? How are you wired? And is this, is this kind of in in the spirit of what we're talking about right here? Yeah. I love that question. It's like, wow, this is like a therapy session, huh? Yeah. Call us doctor, Dr. Jeff and Dr. Eric. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, sure. It's, uh, I think the way I'm wired is I think, uh, in astronomical ways. I mean, our mission uh, envision that next day better as a media company is to rebrand migration and to get people to imagine migrants and refugees in a in more powerful meaning ways and that we are benefit to humanity and I think that's a pretty astronomical goal and it's also a scary one and it, the, this is I think maybe the sadistic part of my entrepreneurial experience is that I get anxious I get fearful of this vision. But when I am achieving steps towards it and we're publishing a video that gets a million views, that gets people to think differently, I consider that like as a, as, as wins towards that goal. And if I don't reach that particular goal, I'm just like, I'm just going to figure out a way to find us. But it's just like, I just lean into that fear and just, know that that's just part of this process that I have. Yeah. Yeah. And what I like, though, is that even though it's an astronomical dream and goal, you marry that with realism, because I've heard you in different articles talk about the idea that, you know, you got to be kind of what we say, no barriers. You got to have to have a pioneering entrepreneurial mindset where you're marrying your talents and your passion to the market. And that's, I guess, what it means to be an entrepreneur, right? You got to take the stuff that you want to achieve and the stuff that you think you're good at and love and marry it to an actual opportunity so that there's a pathway forward that's sustainable, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So how did you kind of come around with that? You know, it sounds like from that moment of, you know, kind of being at that low point, that being a teachable moment and then coming back and getting coached and so forth. And with your business background, you start to be able to see maybe like a, a, a potential market there that you want to step into. Yeah, for sure. 
And I, I, I guess I, I'm just so curious also about your, you know, expeditions and your climbs and, you know, Mount Everest. And I think a lot of that, I would just, you know, part of that journey is a lot of training and testing and learning. Yeah. And I think with the entrepreneurial journey, my Mount Everest is, is to get people to think about immigrants in more loving and accepting ways. And, you know, part of getting there is knowing that I need to work with brands, with big platforms to put out this message. And so how can I bring value to them? How can I test out different products and offerings that is going to maximize their investment, but also create the change that I see in the world? So a lot of it is just training how to build those products, how to market those products and do business development in order to get to that particular goal with the stories that we want to tell in our, in our mission and vision. And so I wonder what's that process for, for you guys as you're kind of going through these climbs and. No, it's the same. I think at a macro level, it's similar. You know, you are kind of an, you know, if you, Jeff and I are both in this kind of adventure world and you kind of have to be an entrepreneur in a way to make it happen. You have to have a plan, a big, long game plan. It is sort of astronomical, you know, trying to get your mindset to believe that you can stand on top of this thing. And then, yeah, you go through a process that's at a macro level, I think, very similar to growing anything in life. So, yeah, the tons of physical training, but also like, you know, Jeff and I will go up in the mountains in the winter and, you know, be pushing through chest deep snow and not a chance in hell that we're actually going to get to the top. But you're just training your mind, you know, you maybe you don't sit down for 10 hours, you know, so you're training your brain to to suffer and be uh, nimble in those tough environments. And, and, and yeah, you got to build a team. It's, it's, it's all so. Mm-hmm. I always think of it as um, like metaphorically, as you're developing these growth calluses and what, whatever it is, whatever that, that objective is, whether it's a physical or emotional or, or professional uh, endeavor, repetition builds performance. And yeah, you, you eventually will have this sort of hardened effort after you've been through it a lot of times. That's why I like people who sign up and, you know, just go do Everest these days and pay a hundred thousand dollars and then they get in trouble way up high. They don't have those calluses. They don't have that experience. Right. And so then they get their asses kicked and, and people have to rescue them. Right. So that's, that's one way to look at it. And then with entrepreneurs, it's the same thing. Like, you know, over time you, you, you went down that, that deep hole, but your intentions were pure. And that's the greatest thing I'm hearing from you is your intentions were really, really honorable. You knew you wanted to create impact, but you didn't anticipate it being that tough on you as an individual. Can I pivot for just one second? Because I've always been fascinated by the displaced refugees and mm-hmm. immigrants. Um, I've, you know, I worked in Nepal after the earthquake medically and saw a lot of displaced folks. Um, you mean thousands and thousands? Um, and then I was in Iraq a couple years ago, and and the, you know, the the displaced refugees in 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 the Middle East right now are you know are absurd. I mean, I think Turkey is the Turkey is the leading country. I think it's over three million people have been displaced just from just from Turkey alone. But I know there's millions per year. You know, I think there was over a couple million in just 2018. Right. That added into this whole thing. So you being an immigrant yourself. Obviously, that's where this whole thing burgeoned from was from your personal experience. Can you just take us into that world of displaced refugees and immigrants and give us give us those who don't know a whole lot about it just a bit of a, of a, of a upper level view? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, there are over 244 million migrants around the world. That includes immigrants, refugees, and internal migrants, etc. And that's a pretty powerful number to think through and think about. And so we live in an increasingly migrant world. And so one of the the biggest misconceptions is like immigrants are a bane to economies, that they're taking advantage of different job opportunities. But to think that immigrants are not also just folks that are displaced, that are there's forced migration. There are f- folks that are also immigrating around the world freely to look at uh, different opportunities or to experience life elsewhere. 
So there's this one linear misconception about what it means to be an immigrant. And I think that's something that we really truly need to kind of like debunk, uh, right? And so, and unpack. So one thing is, you know, we, when we think about this, the refugee narrative, we're really thinking through what's happening in Syria, in the Middle East, in Syrian refugees. But quite frankly, there is a massive refugee crisis that's coming out of Central America. Mm. And we're talking about individuals that are escaping political, religious persecution, individuals that are running away from from gang activities that were, was actually born out of the United States. We're talking about the MS-13 gang, right, in Central Central America. So we have an influx of individuals coming from Central America as refugees. And so how do we think about those individuals in thinking about the humanitarian crisis that they're particularly facing? In America, we also have refugees or asylum seekers that are coming out because they are being persecuted for being LGBT, gay, lesbian, transgender in their particular communities, right? And so what does that particularly look like and how do we particularly serve those communities, not here just in the United States, but also in many Western countries as well? So that's one element of refugees. In the aspect of immigrants, if you take a look at the top Fortune 500 companies, half of them are actually being led by immigrant CEOs or founders. <laughs> That's awesome. So in terms of this narrative around, you know, what are the contributions of immigrants in America? It's actually quite powerful. And not a lot of people are thinking through that as well. But then we take a step further, right? We're not, because we're just talking about the economic contributions of immigrants and refugees to America because they're, you know, leading these Fortune 500 companies. But a lot of the people that we fear in terms of immigrants are just like us. What does that mean? Immigrants, too, also go through cancer, Alzheimer's disease, a lot of uh, issues that everyday Americans are going through. And if you see ourselves and our common humanity from that place that we are just like them, then I think there's an, an opportunity to really uh, build a more accepting, tolerant, and empathetic world. And that's what's missing from all of this. Is that the main objective with what you're doing? Do you feel like that's the main ingredient or, I guess, avenue to use to be able to create empathy for immigrants is to say, hey, we're, we're just like you? Absolutely. I mean, is there is, is that the is that the most effective tool? Sounds like it is, but is is that in your mind what your main emphasis is? Yeah, I think that's that's the main emphasis for storytelling as a whole, right? Mm -hmm. Storytelling has the ability to humanize our experiences, but also build this empathy and connection. But also at the same time, storytelling can propel people to take action, and that's incredibly important. And something that people don't really know about. And uh, have you ever read the book Sapiens for all your listeners out there? Yeah. Right? I've read it, but it, yeah, it's, it, I highly recommend right. it to folks. And so, uh, and with, uh, with Sapien, right, we know that the history of Sapiens or human beings on this planet is a story of migration, right? And so that's why we were able to migrate away from East Africa and uh, build all these civilizations. But the people that were builders of civilizations were actually folks that were able to tell stories. They told stories about communities. They told stories about um, organizing themselves as nations. And that stories led to public policies that enabled people to organize better and at scale as civilizations. And so that still is, is the same concept today. Like we as immigrants and migrants need to own our stories, not to just build empathy, but because we know stories also inspire action and policy change that benefits all, right? And so right now, the work that we're doing and, and why I keep saying there's a global PR battle is because as immigrants, we need to own and tell our stories. And that's part of the mission that we have 
at Next Day Better as a media company. Yeah, and just to be clear, watching some of your videos, I mean, you're building content around, you know, diving into people's real lives and their experience, as well as the history of immigration and, you know, the history of migration and so forth, right? So, so, so you're trying to flesh out all that through, would you call it a network? Would you say Next Day Better is, is really like a, a, a media network or is it a m- more PR? I think it's more, uh, it's a media network. So what we're building now is the largest library of video content that humanizes the migrant experience. You know, so looking at it historically, looking at it in the present day, in the future of migration, that's the content that we are pushing out and will be pushing out. So, for example, we're working with uh, with AARP. You know, we need to advocate for Asian American or Asian uh, veterans that have fought for this country. And not a lot of people know that Vietnamese refugees many of them actually serve in the military. And so there's this anti-refugee narrative that's happening in America, but yet many refugees actually serve in the United States military. I was reading in your, in your, some of your videos are listening to that Filipinos, the same thing, like incredible amounts of Filipinos have joined the U.S. military and supported America in that way. Right. Over 250,000 uh, Filipinos fought for the United States during World War II. And unfortunately, there are some policies uh, or bills that are in place at the moment that is preventing many children and family members of these World War II veterans from coming or staying in the United States. So that story is largely untold. And because it's untold, People are not advocating for the immigrants of these veteran uh, children of these veterans and uh, ensuring that they stay here in the United States and be able to come here in the United States as well. Yeah, it's like, you know, like when you we're kids and we learn about Thanksgiving and we learn about this really sanitized version of history, how the pilgrims and the Indians got together so so well and shared a meal. And really, when you dive (laughs) into it, it's way more complicated. (laughs) Right. But I learned from one of your videos about, you know, the Filipino experience in America. It's like, you know, the Rescission Act, I think I learned about where they rescinded people's citizenships and all kinds of crazy, complicated things that look pretty unfair. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's that's one. The Rescission Act was a, a powerful one. A lot of individuals did not notice. But during the 1920s, uh, Filipino immigrants particularly was a cornerstone and backbone of the agricultural economy of both Alaska, Hawaii, California, and Washington. Actually, along with Cesar Chavez, Filipino leaders organized uh, and really led the labor movement during that time. And so there's all this untold stories about immigrants and migrants, once again, not just Filipinos, who have actually shaped America and we need to tell those stories because that's still happening to this day. Right. Because there's the there's that that spirit of empathy again. You know, I think people, especially not not even just in this country. I mean, I think it's a global phenomenon. Everybody says, this is my fence. I've got my, I'm, this is my property. This is my country. And, and I don't want anybody else in there. But when you show those similarities, for instance, hey, we have a similarity. I came as an immigrant and I fought for this country because I'm grateful to live here. When you tell that story, then you're invoking a, you're almost like stepping across that fence in a way and saying, I'm not just coming here to take, I'm coming here to give and protect and show compassion, right? And loyalty. And I think once people see that, hear that, feel that, that they're they're almost able to transcend that that whole spirit of you know, you're, you're not welcome here. Beer. Right. Yeah. I think the biggest barrier in the me- human mental psyche is fear, is the fear of each other, right? And so it's how do we overcome that sense of fear and really build bridges because our, our commonality is our, is our humanity. And uh, whether you're an immigrant, new citizen, new American, um, and or uh, 
<laughs> or you're just a traveler in this world, right? Uh, like, how do we build that human connection and remove that fear from the equation? I think that's the big challenge uh, that we have at hand. So you're building, you're, you're building empathy. You're kind of cutting down on that fear. You're building bridges, but also there's, I, I read that there's like, um, you want to create collective action and that totally makes sense. So there's like kind of an outcome of sharing these stories. You want people to own their stories, to have collective action, to kind of lean together and get more powerful. Right. And then there's gotta be um, some political stuff like with Trump, you know, calling immigrants all violent mm-hmm. and rapists and stuff like that. That must have just been like a, a, a shot of fuel in the uh, motivation of, of, of your work. Right. Yeah. It's uh, the good thing about Trump. <laughs> Is that an option? Uh, you just, uh, all right. We're going there. there. Uh, yeah. The good, the, good, <laughs> the good thing about Trump is that it has surfaced and galvanized energy, resource, and momentum towards immigrant or migration-based advocacies. Now people care more in some shape or form. And so I can say that confidently that more, more is being invested in realizing the potential of immigrants in this country and around the world. That's the benefit of him being in power. I mean, of course, there's other things that we need, you know, that we could go into in terms of policy and all the negative policy and rhetoric that he, uh, he has. That's for, I feel like, another conversation. <laughs> but yeah, actually now our company is working on census to make sure that every single person in America, whether you're an immigrant, documented, undocumented, is counted in the census. That is part of the, con- you know, that is part of our constitution. And that is important message that everyone needs to participate in. So we're doing something called Why We Count, where we're getting Filipinos, Mexicans, and Puerto Ricans, because they are migrants themselves, especially after Hurricane Maria, to participate in Census 2020. You know, getting counted means, and getting your communities to get counted means you will get more resources towards things that your communities need. So. That's one civic action that we're we're working towards through Next Day Better. So, I mean, it sounds like it's you know it's, you can't just stop it like telling good stories and stuff. You have to get a little political. It sounds like, and really with that collective action to get people to have that voice and have a bigger political power, right? I mean, is that is that part of the equation? I think that's a is that a stated part of the equation, or is that maybe just implicit or not at all? I think to say it's just political voice or political action is as an end result is, is limiting, right? I think the power of story and uh, connecting with a story is to get an immigrant to say like, wow, I watched a story, therefore I matter, right? So finding a sense of meaning. Self-worth. Once you, yeah, self-worth. And then when you watch a story, you say, I am not alone. I have a community. I belong. In a way, Ryan, geez, man, this is, this is your story. I mean, right? This is this, this is like, you just you just actually did a full circle for us right there because at the very beginning you talked about sitting in these in these meetings and wondering about value, your own value, and do I belong and so forth. And you're mm-hmm. creating a narrative that answers your own question, and that's fascinating, man. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. you have you have told your own story through your efforts, and that is. That is the most American thing that anyone can possibly do is is your story. So, dang, dude, well done, man. You're you're a remarkable remarkable fellow doing remarkable things. Tell me about uh, tell us a, about intersections. That's your latest project. Is that related? Yeah, for sure. So, intersections is our series that is actually being broadcasted and viewed across five continents around the world. And we are telling stories of who Filipinos are becoming, sharing stories of how Filipino immigrants, for example, are fighting for indigenous rights in Alaska to uh, uh, Filipino sex tech entrepreneur creating uh, shame-free sex education for all in San Francisco to uh, a surfboard shaper and surfer fighting for climate change uh, in Hawaii. 
And so we're telling these very human stories of Filipino immigrants in that way. Um, and we continue, we will continue to do so. The goal is we are going to scale this to other diaspora or migrant groups. The next part, next part is Puerto Rico, hopefully Mexico and, uh, telling more stories of how they're making an impact in the world in some shape or form. So intersections is one of our series and, uh, we're definitely going to be growing that and actually casting already for season two and season three, uh, which is going to come out next year. How do people see it? You could go to nextdaybetter.com forward slash intersections PH. If you are an immigrant or migrant, or whether you are Filipino or not, and anywhere around the world, you could go to nextdaybetter forward slash intersections, and you could actually submit to potentially be part to participate in future seasons of intersections PH. And so that would be very wonderful if you could get more people to uh, tell their stories through our platform. We'll have those listed in the show notes uh, afterwards too, so folks can check that out as well. And I have one last question, Ryan, about, uh, so we touched on this a little bit with ARP, but what about like, isn't Google one of your partners? How do you get these amazing companies to, you know, kind of believe in what you're doing and maybe even see a value in it for them? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, so we partner not quite yet with Google, but I do work with Google uh, on another aspect. I'm a civic tech policy fellow, so we work on inclusive technology policies. And so that's, that's my work with Google. But we work with Doctors Without Borders, with MailChimp, uh, other brands, the leadership conference. And here's the fact, because there are over 244 million migrants around the world, it also means that they are prospective customers for brands that are trying to grow around the world. So we live in an increasingly migrant world. It is a force with tech innovations and technology and our ability to travel around the world. And as borders and physical and digital borders come down, that means there will be more migrants. That is the story of humanity. So if brands accept the fact that these individuals can provide economic value and customer base, that will be better for their businesses in the long run. And that's why they work with us. They don't work with us because uh, it's just a, a corporate social responsibility play or it's the right thing to do, but it makes business sense. Absolutely. And the more, the faster brands can see that, the better position they will be in the world. Yeah, because that social responsibility, I, I don't know, maybe it's too blunt to say it. Like sometimes it feels like a little bit of a side gig, right? But if you can get them to believe in it in their DNA in terms of like their survival and how they flourish, it seems way more effective. Yeah. Like, for example, colleges and universities, a lot of their revenue are derived from um, from students from abroad. And because of, you know, the rhetoric from the current administration, the, that number from students coming from, you know, China, India, uh, and places around the world has significantly decreased in hurting our uh, institutions of higher learning. So this is what I'm talking about, that there is economic value in um uh, migrants and immigrants and even refugees, right? And so we need to kind of uh, reframe it in that way, but of course not exploit them in that way because that's a different conversation. Well, as you as you continue your work, um, Ryan, you're you're clearly not going to run out of subject matter. Sadly, um, clearly with climate change, you know, migrants, displaced refugees. I think secondary to climate change, which I think is the real disease um, and war. Mm -hmm. uh, and conflict that it's probably the most important issue that we have on a global scale. So what you're doing is sadly, <laughs> it's, it's probably the most important job right alongside folks who are battling against real climate change. And, uh, you know, you're not going to be hungry for work. <laughs> I don't think as time passes. For sure. Storytelling too is, is something that I'm hearing you say is sort of the, the cornerstone of everything you're doing. And, and storytelling is in, uh, clearly like the most effective way to, to transmit information through time, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what's going to last. And 
helping us really imagine ourselves through inclusive storytelling. I do have one uh, last question for you guys in, in my end. Yeah. Uh, I'm just curious. Every day of my existence, there is an element of fear, right? Today, I'm going to meet with our investors and our board. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about how we're going to scale next day better. And I'm going in there with a sense of fear. Hmm. But I tell myself that I am not going to die. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Good, <laughs> and, uh, good basic strategy. And, uh, yeah. But when you guys are climbing and doing, you know, climb Mount Everest, I mean, there is a possibility of death with your decision making as a leader, as a, as a climber. How do you walk through that fear of death in kind of like your decision making <laughs> go for it yeah i take that one uh, yeah well there is a sense of fear for sure every climb you do there's a sense of fear um <clears throat> partly i i think we talked about the idea of preparation you know i think that can reduce your fear if you train like crazy if you get totally prepared in your environment you know you stop to really understand your environment and be super hyper aware of what you're doing you have a built and team you know so all that you know you've as you said you've gone out and failed and flailed and bled enough that you have it built into you know like where you know you have some huge adversity on the mountain it's not going to be the first time you experience that stuff so i think there's ways to minimize the risk and and uh and feel safer out there but i think maybe over time you sort of begin to that fear begins to be replaced by awareness, by confidence, by joy, by, you know, slowing down time and trying to make things, you know, be really um, present. So um, after, you know, years and years of training, as you, as you know, sometimes, you know, the goal is to just be present in the moment and just not experiencing that fear, sort of pushing the, fear back and you have like kind of a a fortress of awareness and confidence and joy around you that gets you know replaces that fear and i i imagine that's that's true with with everything that we do you know we work our butts off and then we get these moments of presence but yeah i think most of the life is trying to minimize that fear that risk and trying to push it back uh, while doing these big things at the same time that was a little rambly, but pretty effective. I think that was a good stab at it for sure. Because yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it's very subjective too. It's um, it's tough to to really have a, a a cookbook version of that because I think we all internalize and externalize fear in what we do, and I think the goal is always to sort of reappropriate fear into fuel in some fashion, like, you know, sort of redefining it, you know, like my kid's 14 and he plays pretty high level athletics, football, lacrosse, and he's been in some big time games. And, you know, I try to relate to him the, some of the situations that I've been in, in my career. And, you know, whether it's standing in front of, a, you know, 4,000 people in an audience and getting ready to talk for an hour or being on the you know, front end of a rope way up high with lots of exposure, those things are all really the same because it's a matter of harnessing that and turning it into something that you can use so it doesn't um, paralyze you. And that's what you're going to do today. Um, you know, you're going you're gonna to find that opportunity to sort of recalibrate what it means to be afraid. And, um, and you've prepared, you know what you're doing, you have the vision, you have everything you need. Yeah. Um, And, you know, Ryan, I mean, I think part of it is we haven't, none of us have chosen this easy life, you know? And so part of it's just a mindset, you know, knowing that it isn't easy, it is scary. That's just part of the equation. And I, I, I know that I'll never eliminate fear from my life. I mean, I know there are certain people that are very lucky there. I think it's, I think maybe there's who knows whether it's a environment or a little bit of a genetics, but like certain people have a lower threshold of fear and those are anomalies. Those are different kinds of people. Most of us just have to learn to wallow in that fear sometimes. And, and uh, as Jeff said, convert it into something uh, that powers us forward. And you've clearly done that. Uh, We, I, I call it alchemy. And I think you've done that for sure. You've taken 
a tough upbringing and your experience and you've created it into fuel that is driving the world forward and elevating the world and elevating people's lives. So that's why we asked you on the No Barriers podcast, because um, I think your story can help a ton of people um, figure out the recipe for their No Barriers life. My gosh. Thank you so much. I mean, that's, that's, uh, I just always just think like about my fear and it takes a lot of energy to turn that fear into a positive energy into your, into whatever purpose or you're doing in life. And, but I always say to myself, you know what, be more compassionate because you're not going to die. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, you'll, you'll continue to push forward because that's what you've just been doing all along. And so just to get your perspective on how you handle that in life and death situations, I think is, is so powerful. And thank you for what you do. I like what you just said, though. What you just said is really interesting because there is an exchange that has to take place because nothing's free in order to to con- there's a conversion. And it's like that's straight physics, right? There's right. a conversion that has to happen and it takes bandwidth. You can't just do it without any effort. So it takes it takes a it takes currency and that currency is your effort in your mind. Uh, and, and it's that that's not free. And so to acknowledge that, I think, is a big is a big part of it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a Latin expression I just read and I'm all excited to share it. And it was, it's thousand years old. And it's, uh, it says through adversity, the stars. And I think that's cool. So I think people have been preaching that and understanding that philosophy for thousands of years, this idea that, you know, something in the process of struggle can unleash potential and purpose and people and people's lives. And that's, uh, that's what we like to see because a lot of our community folks have gone through some tough times, whether it be physical challenges or, you know, multitudes of invisible challenges that we, that we face. But yeah. So thank you, Ryan, so much. Really appreciate it. I think this is uh, so helpful for people because Jeff, I think a lot of like our community, they, they have the passion, right? They, they, they're beginning to translate some of their fear and challenges into this sense of purpose, but now they got to figure out, okay, what's the Avenue. Right. And Ryan, I think expressed this idea of how you create the pathway, right? You have this, this passion and you go out and you get crushed a little bit, right? You're delivering something really important to the world, but yet it's personally taking a huge toll on you and it's unsustainable, but he created a sustainable pathway forward where he built a business around his passion. And uh, I think that's kind of everyone's dream, right? To take your your sense of purpose and build a pathway forward where you can take care of yourself and your family. And you can also do incredible stuff in the world. So there's like kind of a marrying process that I think he illuminates for us all. Yeah, I, I'm not going to lie. Like, I- uh, when I uh, I just got back from Nepal last night, so I'm a little jet lagged, and I read about Ryan this morning, and I was trying to connect the dots, and I didn't see him very clearly at first, as I was trying to you know sort of anticipate lines of questioning and so forth. But as soon as Ryan started telling his story, there's so much amazing relevance. I mean, from a cultural perspective, um, a personal societal perspective, but I mean, also his story is, is phenomenal. His, the way that he was kind of cast into this, this situation that brought out the best in him and asked him to go down to these deep places. And it was so good to hear that he struggled through it and in his desire to be compassionate and I, I love the fact that he's that he's in the midst of what I think is the the biggest humanitarian crisis we have, existentially is is displaced refugees. I love that he's using storytelling as his medium because obviously you and I both are storytellers, Eric. And I love the fact that that's the oldest method of communicating information and creating empathy and passing down uh, really critical pieces of our culture and, and, and telling the story of immigrants to be able to establish a connection with the rest of us that live amongst each other. Uh, so there's just so many great things. I mean, yeah, that was, that was really enlightening for me in so many ways. And I'm grateful to have some time with Ryan. Ryan, we're learning a lot from you. Thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Thanks, Ryan. 
my gosh thank you so much y'all i really appreciate it yeah thank you man really appreciate your time buddy and um keep keep uh fighting the good fight bud make it happen all right no barriers thank you everyone see you next time thanks to all of you for listening to our podcast we know that you have a lot of choices about how you can spend your time and so we appreciate you spending it with us if you enjoy this podcast we encourage you to subscribe to it share it and give us a review show notes can be found at nobarrierspodcast.com special thanks to the dan ryan band for our intro song which is called guidance the production team behind this podcast includes producers Diedrich Jonk and Pauline Schaefer, sound design, editing, and mixing by Tyler Cotman, graphics by Sam Davis, and marketing support by Laura Baldwin and Jamie Donnelly. Thanks to all you amazing people for the great work you do. Our minds, they are changing, and soon they will be fighting.